Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm the Dean of the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. And welcome to this um, panel discussion on the prospects for the UK economy after COVID-19. These are very, very strange times indeed uh, for politics, for, for society, and of course, for economics. There are at least three dimensions in which, uh, economically speaking, this is a very unusual time. First of all, it is um, not every day that you get a crisis simply because government says to workers, please don't work, and it says to firms, please do not produce. In the jargon of economics, this is a negative supply shock, uh, the likes of which I don't think we have seen um, for a very long time, perhaps not ever. Secondly, the size of the fiscal and monetary response across the world, but particularly in advanced countries, is absolutely unprecedented. Uh, ten years ago, we had a big fiscal expansions and big cuts in interest rates, but uh, we got nowhere close to where we seem to be today, in which countries like the UK, like the US and others, are launching fiscal programs of 10, 15, and up to 20 points of GDP. And we're looking at fiscal deficits, uh, you know, 20, 25, 30% of GDP in some countries. Uh, not even in the worst emerging market crises that we see fiscal deficits and ballooning public debts of this magnitude. And the third oddity, of course, is that in spite of it all, at least in the very short run, the economy uh, of the UK and many other advanced economies don't seem to be responding, or perhaps they are, and that's, of course, one of the things that we're going to, um, to be discussing today. But at least for this year and part of next year, the prospects are far from being very good. But of course, there's only so much I can tell you about these very interesting issues, but the, the panel that we're very lucky to have with us today knows a great deal more. So let me welcome first um, Stephanie Flanders, who's the head of Bloomberg Economics and who's had a distinguished career both as a journalist in institutions like the BBC and the New York Times uh, and also at the U.S. Treasury. Steve Machen is a professor of economics at the LSE. Uh, he runs the Center for Economic Performance here and um, uh, is you know, one of the great labor economists uh, in the United Kingdom or around the world. And uh, Gemma Tetlow, who's the chief economist in the Institute for Government here in London. She's written for the FT, and before that, she was a program director at the Institute for uh, Fiscal Studies in, uh, in London. So the rules of engagement are as follows. Uh, we're going to do a first uh, round of remarks. Uh, each panelist will speak for about six minutes. They will get their big ideas out on the table. They will do I will take the chair's privilege, do a quick uh, round of Q&A, and then we will open it up to questions from the audience. So let's go uh, in that order. Stephanie, the floor is yours. I was, uh, I was told to cover the, uh, the economy, uh, the public finances, and the Bloomberg worldview, whatever that is, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I guess to inform that worldview, I should say that uh, Bloomberg Economics has a combination of economists, about 30 independent research economists, as well as up to about 100 of economic reporters around the world. I say that not just as, a, as an advertisement, but because it, it has been extremely useful to combine the two in thinking about how economies have done in this, as you say, completely extraordinary 
time. And if we do think about the sort of the hit to the economy from this crisis across the advanced economies has been in a way broadly similar. You know, we, we do know and we discovered quite early looking at places like France and Italy, what the total lockdown does to production in very short order. Uh, and we look, we saw a sort of 25 to 30 percent fall in production very quickly. Um, that's been similar uh, in the US, in the UK to other places. Um, I think the other lesson that we've had from the early stages of recovery, uh, particularly on the continent, where there's sort of clarity of lockdown and then removal of lockdown, uh, is that you can have a very V-shaped uh, rebound at least up to uh, 90 to 95%. We don't know where that ceiling on activity is going to be. But Germany, for example, has come back, if anything, much faster than people expected. In France, you saw uh, outputs come back, I think, by about 17 percentage points of GDP on the production side in a matter of weeks. So you can turn, we've seen you turn on and turn off, uh, turn off and then turn on the economy again. Um, But we know but crucially, this next stage, this intermediate stage where the virus may be contained but is certainly not defeated, is going to depend very heavily on confidence. And I've been struck by um, the contrast, actually, which may be partly cultural across countries uh, in how that confidence factor plays out. So if you see, for example, in Germany, the declining um, perceived perception that you are at risk from COVID and that luckily the German government actually, or there's a, there's a polling organisation that has measured this throughout, as that perceived risk went down, you saw consumption come back. You are seeing people go back to restaurants anecdotally and also maybe partly in the data. Uh, you're seeing those very short, high frequency indicators, the Google mobility numbers, for example, coming back very quickly um, in Germany. Um, whereas in, in China, which was the first out of lockdown, places like Wuhan, it's still a very twin track recovery. People are going back to the factories, but they haven't necessarily gone back to the shops and the supermarkets. And it's an interesting question how much that depends. I mean, we think there is quite a lot of confidence in the government strategy in China, but maybe fear that you will get tagged. Is that it's such an efficient system. You don't want to get tagged and then back in quarantine for two weeks because you happen to be at the wrong shopping mall at the wrong time. Um, the contrast with the US, where places opened up, as we know, much faster than the experts advised. Georgia was opening up its tattoo parlours uh, very early on, probably ahead of the rest of the US. And people were going to those tattoo parlours and going to those gyms, uh, despite uh, what you would have thought quite a lot of risk. So I think there's there's confidence here. But if you bring it back to the UK, um, we have there's probably more question about confidence there's more question about the hit to the economy. And uh, we know for a fact that we've just had more lockdown. I mean, we've had compared the number of weeks in what you would call a total or very extensive lockdown um, has been a good uh, two, three, depending on which country you're looking at, two to four weeks longer. So just for that reason alone, the hit to the economy is going to be larger. I think because of the lack of clarity about the government strategy the question marks about confidence in this next stage are going to be greater. Um, and potentially that has issues that has implications for the public finances. We may end up with the highest deficit as a share of GDP. You were talking about the various numbers. It looks like we're heading for at least 18% of GDP deficit, which will, could be less than the US, but probably more than more than most other question, most other countries. And there's plenty more to discuss and we'll talk about it. I do think 
that the difficult trade-offs that governments face now, uh, as you move from just putting a floor under the economy to actually trying to help it grow in whatever way is permitted mm -hmm. by the constraints of the virus, is actually going to be much harder. You know, by and large, governments did fill the hole. You know, they estimated what the hit to incomes would be and to a very significant extent filled it. We, the numbers we've looked at across Europe, in the UK, about 58% of the hit, the likely hit to consumer incomes from this crisis was actually made up by the government in real time. Now, that's still a big hit, but they did go a long way towards filling the gap. It's been slightly higher in quite a lot of European countries, but on the order of magnitude, about two thirds of the hit has been covered by governments. As you go into this next stage, we saw in the summer statement this week the difficult trade-offs that finance ministers face. Um, you want to make sure you're not having, putting any barriers in front of growth um, other than just the virus itself. So you, that, that redesign to the job retention scheme, which was already going to happen from August, I think makes sense. So you're not encouraging people to keep workers on layoff. Um, you have to make that, you're sort of trading off between stimulating the economy, which you weren't really trying to do before, you were just trying to hold it together. Um, how much can you stimulate now within the constraints set by social distancing and by lack of confidence? Is there a risk of, of wasting money now that might be better spent when the economy was had less of a ceiling on its activities? Um, and I think there's a trade-off between protecting jobs and enabling adjustments and restructuring to happen. And I'm really interested to hear what Steve says about that. Um, obviously in the US, they have had what you might call a characteristically um, a relaxed approach, relaxed to be overstating it, but they have been uh, more focused on uh, allowing workers to lose their jobs and possibly get relocated in other sectors. Um, than the U European approach, which has been all about retaining jobs. It's an open question which one will turn out to be best, because although our sort of instinct would be a lot of these jobs are probably still viable post-COVID, um, in practice, it looks like there could be quite a lot of restructuring underway, maybe, maybe as much as some of our estimates, it could be a third of these jobs actually have gone for good, the jobs that have been lost. And they may come back in the same sector, but that individual is going to have to will be working in a different place in the end. And should you be trying to make that, uh, you know, when is the stage where you start encouraging that? And when do you still err on the side of protecting jobs? I think we should we're still in the uh, probably more than the chancellor. I think we're still in the stage of wanting to protect jobs. But that is a, that is a difficult thing. And of course, it gets you into all these issues about sectoral targeting, which clearly the Treasury was very nervous about doing in its um, summer statement this week. I mean, I'll probably leave it there, but I do think that, that Rishi Sunak has sort of had the disadvantage or the advantage of being ahead of the rest of the world at both stages because he happened to have a budget uh, already planned right at the start of the crisis. He was kind of the first off the blocks among the advanced economies to try and get a handle on what the fiscal response to this crisis should be. And now, ironically, he's ended up well, by choice or sort of by, by popular pressure, because there was a lot of pressure on Treasury to have this statement. Um, also sort of being the first to tread this difficult line. And I, I suspect they will wish they had done uh, a little bit more 
and or at least or had waited a bit longer to get into that stage of trying to push the economy, trying to stimulate um, and push people into different kinds of jobs to change the approach. I think it was probably a bit early to have this statement, which is also may explain why it was quite um, wasn't as ambitious as many people think. But there are lot, lots of different difficult trade-offs that we're going to face, and I know that, that Gemma and, and uh, Steve will have thoughts on those as well. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Steve, we're going to turn to you. Stephanie was saying that perhaps one of the lasting consequences of the ongoing squeeze is that much structural change will happen, and of course that, uh, that, that needs delicate care and handling. Your thoughts on that and uh, on everything else? Steve, floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Andres. Um, so I'd like to thank the organisers for, uh, for inviting me to this pretty important event, I think. There's certainly a subject matter about what we're talking about is, is extremely relevant uh, for now and for, and for the future, I think. Okay, um, so my, my brief, uh, which Stephanie has introduced me very nicely into, uh, was, is to talk about inequality, but with particular reference to the, um, to the labour market. And so I thought I'd try and organise my, my, my talk around uh, in, into kind of four areas, just briefly talk about the current situation, um, talk about some of the consequences that, from, that sort of follow the economic and social consequences that follow from the situation we're currently in. Uh, then I'd like to move on to uh, discuss uh, various aspects of implications for the future of work. Um, and to conclude with uh, some comments about the, the, the need to reappraise what the UK economic model is. Uh, so that we don't go back to, uh, you can call this the CP view if you want, in, in the sense that Andreas asked what the CP view is, but I think it's a bit broader than that. I think we need to reappraise what the UK's e- e- e-commerce model is, to not go back to the rising inequality type model we had before, to not go back to the mass unemployment problems we experienced in the early 80s. Uh, and there is prospect for both of those things to happen if we don't take the right kind of approach, I think. Okay, so to begin with, on the, on the, on the current situation, um, it's very clear that different uh, individuals and different types of uh, firms have been differentially affected um, by the lockdown because of the, um, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we know from uh, various uh, surveys that have been done, uh, we know from the emerging statistics about who the people are who've lost out more. We probably know... Who pe- which people are going to lose out more in the future as well because of what we know from previous recessions. This recession is obviously different in the sense there was an immediate shutdown uh, rather than the usual kind of recession where, you know, uh, the, the workers in, 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 in insecure jobs tend to go first, the weaker firms tend to get shut down first. But it was a kind of gradual process. Here it's just a discrete stop that was occurred. Uh, and, and so obviously we have some differences and some similarities to previous previous recessions. So we know this time that the uh, the, the individuals uh, who were in work uh, prior to prior to the pandemic uh, who lost out most are younger people, very much so, and uh, people who were already low paid. Uh, so the low paid and the younger ones who've taken the biggest hit, either in terms of actual job loss or in terms of earnings losses um, since, since, since uh, lockdown occurred. Uh, another group have done very badly indeed, uh, which is the self-employed. Uh, we did a survey at LSE, uh, at CP, um, about, about, about um, the impact on, of, 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 of the virus on, um, 
I'm self-employed. And some, some of the self-employed have done extraordinarily badly, especially solo self-employed individuals. That's individuals who don't have any employees. Uh, and so but they're, they're, they've been doing very, very badly in, indeed. Um, I think if we want to think about uh, the future, um, there's other groups that we need to pay a lot of attention to. Uh, one of which is, of course, the people who are entering the labour market this summer, having leaving, leaving school. Uh, and so they're in a very, very situation, different, different situation to, to previous cohorts. And we know uh, from a large body of, of economic research uh, that if you enter, if you enter the labour market in, in bad times, uh, then this both damages your situation when you enter in terms of your wages and employment prospects, but it also has long-term scarring effects as well. Uh, that can persist for, for a long time. So I think we need to pay a lot of attention to be people who are currently entering the labour markets. And in the same way, we need to, to, to sit, check out the situation a lot more about what's going on in schools, uh, because we also know there's an inequality in terms of what's, happen, what's happening to education. Uh, and we know there's a big evidence base out there which talks about learning losses that occur at certain times. So there's an evidence base about summer learning losses, and we know that it's the more disadvantaged children who tend to lose out from summer learning losses. And that's exactly what's happening now uh, in, terms, in, in, terms, in terms of education as well. So not only do we need to be thinking about the people who are currently in the labour market, we need to think about people who are joining the labour market um, in due course. And policy needs to think very carefully about, about that, I think. Okay, so that's the kind of current situation. Uh, in, ter in, terms of, uh, in terms of some of the consequences that emerge from this, I think there's two things we really need to be thinking about and trying to avoid here. Two, two big potential concerns uh, that arise. So we know, uh, I, I mean, one of my research areas is, 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 is about, um, about social mobility. We know the twin drivers of social mobility are more educational inequality and more labour market inequality. Those two things combine to give you poor levels of social mobility. That's exactly what we're seeing in this current, uh, in, in this current crisis. We're seeing rising educational inequalities, amongst um, those in school. We're seeing rising labour market inequalities. Uh, as I said before, it's the already low paid and the young who are, who are losing out more uh, in, in terms of labour market prospects uh, and labour market outcomes. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. So I think we have to think that, that we do not want to go to a long... The Britain situation in terms of the international league table and social mobility is not good to start with. We don't want to go even worse down this route, driven by these twin inequalities uh, that are the key feature of the current crisis. The second thing that needs to be avoided uh, is obviously uh, that we do not want to go to a situation of mass unemployment uh, like we experienced in the early 80s. I think the early 80s is probably more similar Apart from a sexual composition being very different, I think the early 80s uh, recession is, is the one you might want to look at from prior experience uh, uh, to, to, to in, in inform what's going on here, more so certainly than the early 90s and the, and, and the global financial crisis, which had very different structures uh, to them than, than the current recession. Uh, so I think we need to make sure that we do not have a return to mass unemployment, and particularly that we, we may try to ensure that people do not get on tra trajectories towards long-term unemployment. Uh, and, and there is serious scope, if you think about the people who are being affected now and the sectors in which they're working, that may well be something uh, that, that could occur. So I think some of the, some of the, some of the, um, some of the policy uh, moves in the summer statements are good in this regard. Clearly, the new incarnation of the Future Jobs Fund, uh, Kickstart, uh, seems to be a very good 
thing you missed. Because the future job system was shut down by the Conservative government when they came in in 2010, even though it seemed to be doing quite well in terms of offering job guarantees effectively um, to, to young people. So the kickstart policy seems, seems to be particularly good on that, in that regard. Uh, I'm not sure the £1,000 uh, is enough, really, for, the, for, the, um, for when the furlough is removed. That seems to be very modest. The idea to train people with £1,000 is a good thing, but it seems to me clearly that much more is going to need to be done uh, when the furlough, the job retention scheme is removed in October. Okay, so that's discussing the kind of lack of work or possibly about lack of work. I think we also need to, to discuss the future of work. Uh, and I think one thing that's, which Stephanie actually touched on already is extremely important. Is we've got different groups of people, uh, different groups of workers uh, here uh, who are going to be affected in very different ways uh, if and when uh, recovery comes. So for some people, there's a bunch of people who are going to be absolutely fine. They're going to go back in. They've been furloughed. They're going to get back into their jobs. They're going to be absolutely fine. Uh, uh, in, in some, some of those people are doing all right now. Uh, many, many people who have not been furloughed are actually doing even better uh, because they're facing forced savings. Uh, you know, they can't actually consume what they might want to consume. And so actually the savings rate for some people has gone up hugely uh, because of the lack of ability to spend their might spend money as they might have um, usually wanted to, uh, which I think is the other side of a coin which needs to be thought about in the inequality context as well, because of course these are the people who aren't below pay. These are the high-paid older workers uh, who, who are doing absolutely fine, apart from being locked down at home, I guess. Um, okay, so in terms of these different groups, the, 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 those people who really won't be too much affected in the sense of what they'll return to in due course. Then there's other groups of workers, of course, who that might be who were less fortunate in that regard. Um, so there's some who may be able to return to the same kind of occupation and sector if they're displaced from work. There's clearly others who will have to be looking for work in other sectors and in other occupations. So we need to think about what policy should do should do for them. So skills policy is obviously extremely important um, in this regard. So I've already mentioned the um, the idea about the thousand pounds devoted to training of of the uh, furloughed workers if they return. We also need to think about other policies because we obviously know that some people will have sector, firm-specific skills, occupation-specific skills that won't be relevant to, be, to a, a, a job they may find in a different sector. So I think something needs to be done uh, more carefully about, about that. So one thing we do know uh, in terms of the way in which um, uh, training and lifelong learning are delivered in this country is we're much worse at it than uh, many other and many other countries, particularly um, various continental European countries, particularly Germany, Switzerland, Austria. Uh, and one reason why is we are much more willing to offer uh, tax incentives to physical capital, R&D capital, than we are to human capital. And so I actually think a human capital tax credit, which is offered in many other countries, is actually a serious policy that ought to be thought about and designed, given serious consideration about how to design uh, in, in this country as well. So that's one thing. I also think that uh, we don't do much in the way of employer subsidies that tend to work. We've got the apprenticeship levy, but that's pretty, just for apprentices. It's pretty tough, but not that well targeted for other workers. You could think about having a broader lifelong learning levy uh, and that would provide uh, retraining uh, skills for, for adult, adult workers as well. Then the other policy that's obviously extremely important is technology policy, uh, because you can obviously see with the way in which work is going to change, social distancing being an obvious uh, uh, dimension of this. But actually, uh, there's a clear incentive to substitute uh, machines for workers. 
uh, apps, which we accelerated by, 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 by this downturn. And so I think the idea about how technology policies can be divine, designed to be complementary with skills policies is really, really important as well. Uh, the final thing I'd like to emphasize um, in, term, in terms of policies, we know that different parts of the country have been very uh, unevenly affected uh, by, 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 by what's going on. So I think the spatial dimensions uh, are important. We know in some parts of the country there's a very big mismatch between the uh, supply of skills available and the demand for skills by, by, by employers. This varies very dramatically across the country. I think we need to pay more attention to have, think, make sure that we don't have a misallocation of resources because of this. And so I think actually the idea about investing more in certain parts of the country. Uh, the, the sectoral discussion has been involved, which of course is part and parcel of that. There has been discussions about sectors, but I think spatial, spatial, differential spatial investments is actually an important um, thing to be thinking about as well. Um, and so then finally, I, I, I already said this before, but I think all the position we're in now and the forward-looking position, the expectations uh, of the future uh, offer an opportunity and a need to reappraise the UK's economic model. We don't want to go back to the, uh, the unsuccessful models where, where we've had uh, bad features of rising inequality for 40 years in the labour market, at least 40 years in the labour market, and uh, prospects to, with, with, with a serious downturn here, one of the most serious downturns we've ever experienced, uh, to, to re- return to problems of mass, mass and long-term unemployment. Okay, I shall stop there. Thank you very much, Stephen. Those are absolutely key issues to which I'm sure we will return in the course of the discussion. Now let me turn to Gemma. Gemma, there was a piece in the FT yesterday or the day before whose title was The Chancellor Cannot Keep Playing Santa Claus Forever. Um, clearly, these are gigantic uh, packages uh, which are necessary in the short run, but uh, can we sustain them? Thanks, Andreas. I mean, it, yes, I think as you and Stephanie have both said, um, the government has done a huge amount uh, since the end of March to keep the economy going and particularly to prop up household incomes, which is what what Stephanie talked about, but also a huge amount of extra spending on public services that have come under pressure. Um, So I was asked to say a bit in my opening remarks about what has been the impact on public services and what might the future of those be, and also to say a little bit about the so-called machinery of government reforms that might be coming along as well. Um, I guess it's always Government is always important, but as you just alluded to, government has been particularly important uh, in this crisis because it really has stepped in in a huge way, both to respond to the the health crisis. The NHS and social care services have obviously had a major role to play in treating the ill and protecting the vulnerable. And then things like the police services have been very important in overseeing the lockdown restrictions that have been needed to try and mitigate those public health impacts. Um, And I think the sort of picture so far seems to be a mixed one of some things having gone well within those public services and areas where clearly um, they were not well enough set up and that lessons that could have been learned previously and preparations that could have been made weren't uh, made adequately. Um, And so new lessons will need to be learned um, for the future. Um, In particular, um, and this is an area that colleagues at the OFG are doing work on, will be publishing more work on over the next few weeks, 
Um, there seems to have been problems with coordinating and communicating between different parts of government. Um, and some critical services have clearly been suspended in quite a serious way, uh, particularly children have been at schools, non-COVID related NHS treatment was suspended for quite a long time. We know that things like many court cases have been postponed. And so we should be concerned about the extent to which those areas of public service shutdown are going to have longer term negative impacts. And Steve alluded to those in relation to kids missing out on uh, schooling, particularly some of the most deprived children. Um, in terms of how well placed public services were for the sort of dealing with coronavirus, in some ways things went well. Um, there seems to have been uh, a degree to which the emergency plans that services had in place did come through and, and were beneficial in responding to this crisis. Um, and in particular, those services that are most used to or, or most expecting to deal with emergencies that have sort of structures in place that it's clear who's in control and how that sort of decision making and operational decisions cascade down. So uh, police, prisons, uh, health services, uh, they have some requirements within law to be prepared for emergencies and those systems seemed to work in some ways quite effectively. Um, Similarly, um, there was uh, within those services the sort of degree to which the sort of training and culture of those services was also lent itself to being able to respond to a crisis. So prisons, for example, have had to deal in the past with outbreaks of infectious diseases. So there was some understanding of what was needed there and they could do that again. Um, on the other hand, we have seen definite problems within public services. Um, it's been widely covered that some of the lessons from previous sort of wargaming exercises of uh, what a flu pandemic would do uh, were not learned. So equipment was not stockpiled during an era of uh, tight public spending restraint and cuts for many services. So some of the equipment that had been identified from earlier exercises wasn't actually stocked up on. But also those earlier exercises had focused on a flu pandemic some of those lessons are relevant to coronavirus, not all of them were. And in particular, there was a, a lack of appreciation and sort of preparation for how services would operate under conditions of social distancing, which have obviously been necessary this time. Uh, there also uh, was clearly uh, a lack of engagement with some key stakeholders in those earlier exercises. And in particular, the, the huge number of private care homes who provide social care services to the elderly and other vulnerable groups were not given sight of the outputs of those uh, wargaming exercises previously. So they weren't aware of the conclusions that were drawn and they weren't aware of the sort of preparations that were going to be needed of them. And that has been a problem. Um, 10 years of public spending cuts similarly um, led to a push for services to be run more efficiently, as in how much can you turn out the door this year? Um, there was definitely eyes were taken off the ball in terms of thinking about the resilience of services to low probability but high impact shocks like uh, this coronavirus outbreak. On the other hand, I think we have some, seen some sort of welcome changes that coronavirus has prompted. It has certainly, for example, led to a sudden big increase in the use of telephone and online consultations for GPs, for example, which is something that has been clearly 
a direction we needed to move in for for many years, but just hasn't happened very rapidly. So hopefully some of those kind of uh, reforms will uh, stick for longer now that we've kind of made that shift in mindset that we we realise these things are possible. Um, In in terms of machinery of government reforms, um, I mean, it's a bit of a jargony term, but just to cover the sort of the whole way that government is set up to deliver what it's supposed to be doing. This is obviously something that was on the government's agenda before coronavirus um, outbreak. Boris Johnson's government, this has been something they've had in their minds for quite a while. Um, And in part because there was a sense amongst the current set of ministers that trying to prepare for Brexit had exposed some weaknesses in the civil service around their ability to deliver, how effective they were, whether they had the right skills and whether uh, they were planning appropriately. What had been on the agenda before coronavirus, um, particularly kind of associated with key political advisers like Dominic Cummings, um, was a feeling that the centre of government what was going on within number 10, the cabinet office and the treasury was too cumbersome. Um, There was also a concern about the high turnover of officials and the lack of skills and expertise of the officials in key roles, um, that they just didn't have the experience needed uh, to make the decisions and and help develop policy. Um, And so there was a sense that that required a change to the types of people who were attracted into the civil service, how they were pay, paid, how they were incentivised to stay uh, in their posts. And there's obviously been the well-covered criticism that uh, keep senior civil servants lacked diversity of thinking and uh, Dominic Cummings' uh, famous blog calling for super-talented weirdos to join the civil service. Obviously, those kind of criticisms have been closely associated with people like Dominic Cummings, but they are in line with criticisms that the Institute for Government and others have made in the past. Certainly, there has for a long time been a problem of high turnover in the civil service, um, with key departments like the Treasury losing a quarter of their staff every year, which is really quite high turnover compared to other comparable organisations either elsewhere in the world or in the private sector. Um, In terms of what coronavirus has sort of added into this mix, um, sort of Institute for Government research suggests that we've seen that there's been a problem with contingency planning uh, for some of the reasons that I just outlined in relation to public services. Um, There's a lack of accountability um, within civil service structures. This is something we've talked about in the past, um, but This crisis in particular has highlighted the problems within, for example, Public Health England. Um, Government, even though that was uh, supposed to be an agency um, with responsibility for um, rolling out uh, things like testing and acquiring PPE, in the event, uh, actually, government has had to appoint new people within the centre of government to try and get on top of making sure that we have testing and personal protective equipment that is needed. Um, The government has also seems to have struggled to deliver across some of the quite sort of diffuse structures. Um, This crisis has required people to respond both with decision making at the centre, but then all the way down through the chain of delivery into local authorities. And in some places that has caused problems. So sort of question about what reforms are needed there to improve coordination and communication across those chains. Um, We've also obviously seen some tensions 
between the Westminster government and the devolved nations with different decisions being taken in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland about how they approach the lockdown uh, on the one hand. So those powers are held in the devolved nations. On the other hand, all of the major economic response is held by the Treasury and is being rolled out nationwide. Again, there have been examples of um, good practice and good innovations uh, within the civil service. So in particular, I think that the Treasury and HMRC have rightly been praised for the scale, rapidity and effectiveness of the economic policy response. And it seems that really right from the start, there was a very close relationship between officials in the Treasury and HMRC to figure out what can we do and what's both economically desirable and what's practically possible uh, within our existing systems. And that they've kind of looked at the evidence and iterated on those packages as they've gone along. Um, Similarly, some critical digital systems seem to have held up quite well during this crisis. I guess universal credit policy had been criticised heavily um, over the last few years, but actually in the event, the systems were pretty able, well able to deal with a big increase in uh, new applications. And that's in contrast to what some other countries saw where, for example, Canada and Ireland have had to roll out entirely new kind of pandemic related unemployment payments because their existing systems just couldn't have coped with the big increase in new applications. Um, And there has been some um, good use of data within central government to try and understand what the key demands are um, and to use that data to flexibly respond. Also, the civil service, like many of the rest of us, have been working from home for most of this period, which sort of challenged the idea uh, that there always was, particularly amongst civil servants involved in policymaking, that they needed to be sitting there face to face um, with ministers and other officials in Whitehall. Actually, uh, many things have continued to work very effectively with civil servants working from home. So I think just uh, I'm conscious of time. Um, There was an agenda already for reforming the civil service. Um, That clearly more has been added, layered over that with the experience of coronavirus. Um, That is kind of tapping into some longstanding criticisms of Uh, the civil service and some of the ways in which government is structured and operated. Um, For reform to work, the government is going to need to make sure that it takes the civil service with them, um, rather than trying to undermine uh, the civil service um, with criticism at what is a very difficult time and a time when government as a whole continues to need to deliver some pretty crucial services. Um, So doing this in a positive, constructive way will be very important. Um, I think sort of beyond uh, this crisis response period, I think there will be very important questions both for the public and for government about what shape, size, scope of public sector do we want on the other side of this. Um, The NHS services and social care have it increased spending significantly during this period. It's also highlighted the sort of need for more resilience in public services, perhaps. So on the other side of this, to what extent is there a greater desire and willingness among the public for those services to be more resilient and perhaps more expansive? Um, Similarly, perhaps, in fact, we haven't really quite seen this yet, but if we do see an increase in unemployment later in the year, that is going to start to highlight the 
the structure of unemployment benefits that we have chosen in this country in recent years, which is very much kind of minimal poverty avoidance level of income through universal credit. Um, Other countries have more generous earnings replacement types of social safety nets. Um, Do we start to have a new conversation about a desire for a, a more substantive social safety net, given that people have now seen firsthand what can happen with a big shock that people would have struggled to insure themselves against. So I think those questions will be coming down the line. And then the obvious kind of counterpart to that is how do you pay for it if you want more from the state? Thanks very much, Gemma. Um, Civil service reform is always uh, an issue that is on the table. I cannot resist the temptation to add that uh, at the LSE, we run an executive master's program for the civil service. So I'm sure people coming out of that will um, help solve some of the problems here you put your finger on. Let me turn back to Stephanie um, and talk a little bit more about the shape and speed of the recovery. You sounded, at least in the beginning, uh, reasonably gung-ho, Stephanie, about uh, a quick recovery. And in some sense, you must be right, because when you send people home uh, and activity drops by 25%, once you say to people who run pubs, go back, open up, almost mechanically, arithmetically, you're going to get a pick of an activity. But as I look forward, you know, beyond the next month or two or three, there are a few factors that could push in the other direction. And let me just mention them very quickly. One is, and you said it uh, yourself, the lasting consequences of social distancing. It is not the same thing to run a restaurant, you know, packed with tables and to run a restaurant with, you know, one quarter of the number of tables you used to have. And, you know, we at universities are struggling with this issue right now. Secondly, we know from previous recessions that when you pile a lot of debt onto the balance sheets of firms and families, they're more uh, reluctant later on to spend. And uh, clearly the government will have a lot of debt coming out of this, but a lot of firms will will have a lot of debt too. You know, they kept on paying employees and paying suppliers and paying for previous uh, uh, interest payment commitments while they had no income. And they, you know, they, the way they got the money, of course, was simply by getting more debt. And last but not least, um, you suggested that about a third of the jobs uh, will be gone forever, which means a lot of structural change. Uh, and new firms and new sectors will, will, will arise, but uh, the ones that disappear go quickly, the ones that come up, come up slowly. Put it all together, I could tell a story of something that picks up very quickly in the short run, but then becomes very sluggish over the medium term. Where where do you come out on all of that? I think, well, the, the honest answer is, I think all of the things that you suggest are, are, are clearly are clearly right and they're clearly concerns. I mean, the, the, the problem we have in all of this, it happens with the fiscal side, the fiscal impact and the economic impact, is our sense of scale is completely off. Right. So we're just getting used to this, you know, 25 percent fall in GDP, um, suddenly uh, ending up with only a 5 percent deficit at the end of the year. You know, if you get back to 95 percent of the output you had at the start of the year, that's going to seem great in V-shape. But you've still got probably a deeper recession than you had in 2008. So I do think there is a there is a problem we're going to have in the framing of this where we could have all of the things, all of the good stuff could happen and we're still facing a massive issue. So I, I think that's, I think that's right. I am, um, I, I do think there's a, quite a lot of uncertainty about whether that number is 95%, 90%, 
And that depends partly on the public health aspect, which finance ministers and other policymakers can't really control, economic policymakers can't control. Um, but it will also depend on the, the question you raise about uh, uncertainty and lack of confidence. So you mentioned the savings ratio going up. We reckon that the household savings ratio went up to about 20% in the second quarter, uh, 20% of just UK disposable income. And that's including the hit in income to quite a lot of households. Overall, um, this massive jump in savings. It could be, it's probably even higher in the US because they have had, uh, I think actually personal income went up in the second quarter in the US because of the sheer extent of those um, transfers, which is extraordinary in itself when you think of the, the deepest recession we've ever had actually saw a rise in household income. Um, but those are aggregate numbers, clearly. But if you have a big chunk of the population sitting on all these savings, there's clearly a liquidity trap worry uh, that people will continue to be uncertain uh, especially if the, social, the safety net that was in place is now starting to be removed. Um, I think you know, that is one of the things that makes the Chancellor's job harder. And it is one of the things that I think could be, you know, for us, we're looking at what's the ceiling on output set by social distancing? Let's say it's 95% in the best case, because you still can't do live theatre and you still can't do some of these things. And House of Hospitality, as you say, is going to be thinner. Um, do what can you do to make the demand at least go up to 95 percent um when people are inevitably going to be concerned about their future jobs and the future of the company they work for uh, as well as their fear of, of the virus so i think that all of those are very important things to worry about and i think it are hard things for the chancellor to affect and i think the sort of lack of confidence around that was reflected in the rather ridiculous eat out to help out um, scheme, you know, which is, you know, on the face of it is saying, is trying to push people to go out to restaurants, even in a context where there's quite a lot of constraints on capacity, um, but is only planning to be expecting to spend 500 million pounds, uh, which is of nothing in the compared to 190 billion of support for the economy. So they clearly didn't have a lot of confidence behind that. And they're probably right in that because this is a we're probably not at the stage where you can really push those push those buttons. But it's crucial you know, when you come back to the fiscal implications, uh, your point about scarring clearly is going to hugely affect what the residual problem is that a chancellor is facing in a year's time. Now, I don't expect us to start talking about deficit reduction measures um, until into next year. I don't think we'll get a path from the Chancellor or plan for fiscal consolidation, even a future plan in the autumn, or only a very, I'd be interested if Gemma disagrees, maybe a sketchy, very outlines of one. Um, but it, how much... Uh, how much of the economy can come back will be absolutely fundamental to how much of a problem we have long term. And I share all the concerns about restructuring and relocation. Thank you. Stephen, you mentioned some pretty depressing facts about uh, the performance of the labour market and what it means for inequality. And I'd like to ask you to just dig a little deeper in two dimensions. First, this, you know, this fact that is not new, we see it every time there's a crisis, this time it's just bigger and deeper, namely that um, the kinds of people who lose their jobs uh, are not randomly drawn from the uh, distribution. It is typically the self-employed, the very young people who work in small firms, etc. 
We see that in the UK, we see that in the US, we don't see it so much in continental Europe. We didn't 10 years ago, we're not seeing it today. So I wonder what this means for the kind of overall structure of a labor market. Um, you know, we, a, a labor market like the UK is based on a lot of very short-term contracts, et cetera, et cetera. That's less common in continental Europe. Are there any lessons here? That's my first question. My second question is you played a lot, you know, you placed a lot of, of hope and emphasis on reskilling and, and training. Uh, and of course, at some level, that has to be right. You know, I'm a professor, so I believe in skills and training. But uh, my rather, uh, um, you know, non-technical reading of the evidence is that aside from a few examples, maybe Germany does it right, these reskilling, uh, uh, retraining programs across the world are very expensive and they don't deliver a lot for the buck. Uh, what does the UK need to do to make sure that, in fact, uh, that's money well spent? Over to you. Okay, um, all good points. Um, so, I mean, I, mean I, I guess, you know, one, one observation is that, to start with, is that the labour market, and certainly in terms of wages, was doing pretty badly uh, before this as well. We, you know, we've had the longest sustained period of real wage stagnation uh, probably since records began, uh, since the global financial crisis. Um, it's doing extraordinarily well on employment. Uh, and in fact, employment was uh, at record levels. Uh, you know, when, when, if you take the total employment in, uh, being employed plus the self-employed, I mean, a lot of the jobs that were created since 2008 were actually solo self-employed um, positions, and about two-thirds of them. Um, but you know it was doing very well. So because lots of people in work, the unemployment rate was 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 pretty low. So we've got so we're facing this challenge of, of the unemployment rate potentially skyrocketing uh, uh, in relative to the recent past. And I don't see anything out in in the position of real wages improving. Uh, and you know and we, productivity has been very poor uh, in in Britain for for the last ten years. So we're already in a pretty bad position to start with. Uh, in in terms of uh, in, in terms of that, um, I guess the point about what do, what can we learn from other countries on two dimensions: one about the response to recessions, and the other the other about um, training and skills uh, provision. Um, so you know, I mean, the pattern how 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 different sorts of individuals are affected in the labour market in in recessions is fairly common across countries. It does tend to be younger people. Uh, who've got less labour market? Who've got less labour market experience? Who just entered the labour market, perhaps, and uh, and and people working in more vulnerable um, firms in declining sectors uh, that are, are, are typically affected. Um, I think the difference uh, relative to other countries is is the provision of active labour market policies um, in other countries to try to make sure this doesn't isn't 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 what happens and we've been very 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 weak on that i mean i, I mean sort of ironically and interestingly many of the measures uh, that are being introduced are explicitly active labor market policies the uh, the kickstart uh, is if, is effectively a job guarantee for for um for, for, for younger workers i mean what what i would say about that is i think some i think the eye has been taken off the ball a little bit here about about the older workers who are going to have to switch sectors uh, and may not have enough general skills to get uh, get get decent jobs in most sectors. So I do think the concept about a job guarantee for the older workers, if they do reach a particular unemployment duration threshold, usually it would be 12 months. You would think about ought to also be on the agenda here, at least at least in the initial stages of 
trying trying to come out in in, in terms of e- economic recovery. Uh, yes, what you say is completely right about uh, about some of the uh, large scale training and skills programs that have been introduced in the world, but you can find success stories as well. So, for example, if you think about a job training partnership act in the US, which was a big deal about providing training, I mean, it really didn't do a great job at all. I mean, I would argue possibly, but it was even, despite it being expensive, that was because not enough money was spent on it. I mean, you actually have to invest serious amounts of money. If you want to do the calculation relative to the alternative, which would be leaving people in terms of long-term unemployment, which doesn't just affect them in terms of economic and social costs, it affects their families, it affects their communities. Uh, I think you can make a better case for spending more money on some of these programs relative to to others as well. And of course, the big elephant in the room in Britain is uh, the provision of uh, further education, which has been terrible uh, for, for a long, long time, massively underfunded, uh, and, you know, we, ha- we were seeing moves in a good direction just before this, this current downturn in terms of some aspects about, uh, about, about, about further education and making further education compete in some sense with higher education. You know, we've always done very well in universities in Britain. We provide very, very good quality university education. Uh, but we do not have a system that provides vocational education that makes people with vocational their qualifications compete adequately in the labour market with, with people with degrees. Uh, that does happen in other countries. It happens very successfully in other countries, uh, not just continental Europe. In, in, in various middle-income uh, countries, it works pretty well as well. Uh, and we have evidence and evidence to show that from, from certain studies. So I think that's where we need to be looking uh, in terms of thinking about skills policy and uh, education policy of the next cohorts of people perhaps entering the labor market. Thank you, Steve. I think that the mention of active labor market policy is absolutely key. If one looks at Scandinavia, other places in Europe, that's what they do. And at least in my view, that's what they seem to do right. Um, Gemma, um, two quick questions for you. Actually, maybe not so quick uh, because the subjects are, are deep. Um, if one looks at the UK civil service, um, what is striking about it, and of course, this is very much in the tradition of the UK civil service, is this approach to uh, uh, having non-generalists. In you know, If you join the US Treasury, you spend the next 30 years there, you would never dream of going to agriculture uh, 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 or interior or some other uh, ministry. Uh, whereas in the UK, and of course, this was the model followed by Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and a few other countries, uh, it is very much of the essence of the model that you're a non-generalist and you you so you are a generalist. You're not a non-specialist, and you you hop around from uh, from sector to sector. Given what we've seen in the last few months, and given the criticisms that are out there, uh, might it be the time to rethink this model more fundamentally and move toward what other countries have? And then, secondly, you know, Steve just mentioned one big elephant in the room. Let me mention the other big elephant in the room, and it's called money. Um, all these things cost money. Uh, we also saw the headlines a couple of weeks ago that uh, public debt in the UK will be above 100% of GDP. I believe this is the first time we've been there since World War II. Uh, and that means that uh, if reform costs money and money is not plentiful, reform may be set back. Your thoughts uh, on both of these thorny issues, and then we'll go back to the audience for Q&A. Sure. Um, so on the, the civil service point, um, as I alluded to in my remarks, it is a kind of concern, ongoing criticism that has been made of the UK civil service is this model of generalists who move around very rapidly. And that has a couple of problems. One is sort of lack of deep 
skills and knowledge of particular policy areas and the rapid moving around means both that you rather not building up that knowledge base and you lose institutional knowledge in general if you don't have the right systems in place um, but also a kind of concern that there's a lack of accountability for people in key um, positions within the civil service so quite often the people who are in charge of setting up big new programs take something like universal credit program or something very often those people will have moved on before projects get fully implemented and so there's a lack of accountability for if things got have gone wrong from decisions that civil servants made they've then moved on and there's no sort of comeback to them in their future careers um, so that's kind of been highlighted again by both this government and by um, some of what's happened with uh, coronavirus response um, I think to, to give the UK civil service its dues this has been acknowledged and there have been efforts made in the sort of move towards having functions within the civil service so putting more emphasis on recruiting people with commercial skills helping them to train up and develop those people with project delivery capabilities um, sort of the finance profession within the civil service those have all been quite welcome developments but there's still further to go with those kind of initiatives and in particular colleagues of mine have highlighted the fact that some of that, that sort of skills development at the moment, there's quite a good kind of entry level training program for people wanting to become commercial specialists, say, in the civil service. And there's quite good training if you are the high flying next leader of that kind of um, function. Um, there's much less uh, focus on the sort of the vast bulk of those people who are delivering commercial functions across or project delivering projects all sorts of small projects across the civil service there's much less kind of focus on how do you maintain and develop the skills of that set of people so it's sort of there's more to be done there um, there's also I think a mix of um, you talk about this kind of the specialist versus generalists I think there are pros and cons of both models but if you're going to go with the generalist model then you need to make sure you've got all the other structures in place that allow you to do that and that includes having kind of appropriate ways of holding on to institutional knowledge and making sure that civil servants have the right networks of contacts outside the civil service to draw in those specialist skills and understanding from including uh, sort of academics and experts like uh, Steve and others who um, can help to inform policy development when you need those skills if you don't have that kind of deep knowledge within your civil servants. Um, so I don't think it's you can make arguments for both models, but you do need the right structures in place if you have a generalist model. Um, on the money side, um, this is clearly going to be a crucial question. And uh, Rishi Sunak in his speech this week said there will be a phase three of the government's response, which is getting the public finances back into a sustainable position for the medium term. Um, it's not quite as simple as where are we going to get the money to pay for these hundreds of billions of pounds that we've bailed out um, the country this year? Because what, what's kind of needed in terms of the fiscal reckoning will depend really crucially on how does the economy grow from here? I mean, you talked about the fact that we haven't had over 100% of GDP debt since the aftermath of the Second World War. At the end of the Second World War, we had 250% of GDP debt. The government didn't just pay that back the reason it ceased to be a problem was because the economy grew strongly and that that level of debt burden just diminished relative to the UK economy over the following decades um, and by the mid-1960s we got it below 100% of GDP so 
the kind of the point that Stephanie was talking about is what is the per, sort of more permanent, lasting economic impact of the coronavirus? If this is purely a temporary shock and we can get everything back and get back onto a strong growth path, then the fiscal reckoning for government is pretty mild. If we have something more, well, I mean, okay, Stephanie's pulling a face at me. I, <laughs> sorry, I was sort of... Uh, in fairness, falling into Stephanie's trap of we're getting our numbers all out of whack here. Um, this is a big increase in debt, but it would be a one-off increase in debt. And then the question is, how quickly do you feel you need to pay that down? If we have something, a much more severe economic outcome, which is that we are on a permanently lower growth path and we never get back the full loss of output that we've had this year, that's a much more, even more difficult fiscal reckoning for the government is you need to permanently raise taxes or permanently cut spending every year, as well as dealing with the hangover of the debt from this year. Thank you. Uh, I'm tempted to add that the other way that the UK brought debt back was by a bit of good old-fashioned financial repression, which made it hard <laughs> to repay the debt. So a fascinating question might be, are we going to see some of that in the, in the future? Let me leave that out for, for thought. All right, we have exactly half an hour for questions from the audience, and we've got plenty coming in. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily follow the same order, but uh, there's one for Stephanie here with which I would like to start. Sophie Knowles from Middlesex University. We've got people from all over the UK and all over the world actually listening in. Um, Sophie says, there seems to be a lot riding on the public perception and confidence um, when it comes to the recovery, especially of consumption and output. But then Sophie adds, of course, it is the media that um, is to some extent responsible for these uh, perceptions. Can you please comment and the media's role uh, in both developing these perceptions and helping or maybe hindering the recovery? I think there's uh, there's a number of things that are going to affect um, the recovery. I mean, uh, yes, the media, one can always happily blame the media um, for, for lots of things. I think the challenge for this is that um, the media were uh, willing conspirators with the government uh, during the lockdown phase in making people as frightened as possible. And I don't know, certainly I know my, my partner sitting at home was occasionally frustrated by the number of pieces on the 10 o'clock news that were designed to make people very afraid and to remind people that you didn't have to be old to seriously get uh, coronavirus. So I think having done that, um, I think that's why tonally there was a little bit of a feeling that things like the Eat Out to help out just seemed like they were pushing a bit too fast in the other direction. You have a government that until very recently was trying to make you very frightened, that is now somehow saying you must all rush to the, to the pubs and restaurants and there's no, there's no issue. So I think it's, that is not that's inevitable that the government would have faced that challenge, but uh, I don't think it's entirely the media's fault if we're not all turning on a dime and deciding that the world is now a happy place. And there's good reason why we're not... Um, changing our view because we can see uh, and we know from all of the expert the, the public health uh, analysis that there will continue to be a risk and there's that risk of a second wave in the autumn and you know people are re people are learning about all the same epidemiological issues around the world um, so I, I, I think I don't think it's so much the media as the clarity of the government message and that given they struggled when the message was quite straightforward, um, the now that you have to have a more nuanced message, uh, I do worry that the 
fact that they've already had so many U-turns and had so much lack of clarity is going to make it harder for people to walk in a straight line on this. But it's not, it is not unique to this government, but it does, it's a, it's a challenge that the government has particularly grappled with. And I think it's that if we had the technical side of the track and trace, for example, uh, really firmly in place, I think it would help a lot with the messaging because that is definitely what you're seeing in Germany and elsewhere. Thank you. Um, and thanks for keeping the answers brief so, so that we can uh, get through as many questions as possible. Um, Gemma, Ben Zarenko from the Institute for Fiscal Studies would like to know the following. He says, do you think that this year's spending review, if it happens, will... Um, where did my question go? Oh, there we go. We'll continue to prioritize NHS spending to the detriment of other things where we need more spending. Um, and um, what are the chances of a change happening in your view? Um, it's a good question. Um, it, it, sort of to go to his if it happens um, point, I think it was interesting to hear Rishi Sunak sort of commit firmly to doing a spending review in the autumn, although it wasn't clear how long it would cover. Um, if that happens, it's we're likely still to be in a situation where we don't really know either what the course of the disease is going to be or what the sort of course of the economy is going to be. So any spending review is going to happen at quite a difficult time to know really what are the sort of medium term demands on public services going to be. Um, I think Ben is right that the UK public and government has always had a bit of a love affair with the NHS and always been more willing to put money into it than into any other services. I think pre-coronavirus, we there had been a big sort of upswell of understanding about the importance of social care and the need for more spending there, or the problems of lack of um, support there. I think I am a bit concerned, actually, that um, coronavirus has again while social care has clearly been part of the mix, a lot of the focus has been on the response of the NHS and particularly the acute response of the NHS. And so I think I do have a concern that a lot a lot more money will end up going into acute health care, which is where we've always spent a lot of money, um, perhaps to the detriment of public health, where this crisis ought to have highlighted some of the issues with a lack of focus on public health, including things like uh, helping people to lose weight, which Boris Johnson says is his new priority. Um, I have to say, I haven't yet seen him personally implement his uh, weight loss programme, but maybe I'm just not looking close enough. Um, uh, but so public health and also um, social care. So I, I think it is there is a, a danger that um, coronavirus will put more money into the NHS. Not a danger, the NHS needs money as well, but it's, again, the weight of public opinion being there, perhaps to the detriment of other services. Thank you, Gemma. Steve, Mike Gallagher has a question for you. Uh, Mike says, will the effects of COVID, the loss of many traditional jobs and the rise of remote working lead to a new stage in the tech-driven economic revolution? And he adds, and this second half, I'm very curious to hear your answer to, how will universities learn to adapt to this new reality? Uh, yeah, um... So, 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 so the two parts of that, uh, they're sort of related, actually, I think. Um, the technology-driven dimension is very, is, is, is very important. Uh, so, I, I mean, I tried to, I briefly touched on that in, in, term, in terms of some of the policy discussions or po possible policy angles that need to be thought about when I was talking about technology policy needing to be complementary with 
um, skills policy. Uh, because obviously, various dimensions of what's going on in the world of work, uh, the social di- social distancing dimension being the obvious one, but also other other, other ways in which work will have to be organised differently. Uh, homeworking being being one 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 of the possibilities that people might want to carry on with more uh, than they did they, they did before. I mean, the evidence on 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 whether homeworking is a good thing or a bad thing is very mixed, I think, in the literature. Um, so there's various, there's some stuff Nick Bloom's done suggesting that there were big benefits from it. There's some other, other evidence suggesting not that. Um, and so I think that these kind of technological dimensions uh, are important, as indeed is the whole digital digitization of work and home, homeworking being being one, 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 of those, one of those issues. So I do think uh, that... that, that the way in which technology impacts the labour market uh, needs to be thought of perhaps in a slightly different way uh, from 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 uh, from where we where we've been before. Uh, and I also, I also think there's scope for for issues to do with sustainability of work here as well uh, that people need to be thinking about in this light. It's going a little bit away from the question, but I think the idea about you know, green technologies and so on uh, being part and parcel of perhaps of some of the job guarantee type uh, work that, that, that may well be coming about uh, if, if people are being, if job loss is, is more pronounced uh, as it looks like it may well be. Um, and so I think that's actually worth, worth thinking about in the technological dimension as well. And the second, the second part, do universities have to adapt? Well, like, yes, definitely universities will have to adapt. I mean, we're doing most of our teaching online. That's not the obvious thing we're doing right now. I think we have to adapt in terms of our abilities to recruit students uh, and, and in terms of um, the subjects uh, that we offer as well. So, so I do think the universities need a bit of a shake up here. Uh, you know, um, some universities could end up in a real bad way, I think. Uh, if, we, if we actually do the double whammy of COVID and um, Brexit uh, as well, which we haven't spoken about much here, I think universities are indeed under pressure and do need to adapt. I also think that the point I made before about, about, about the FE sector uh, becoming potentially more important also speak to that the issue about universities as well. Um, so I, so I, th- I think they're very good points uh, that, that, that were asked, and I think they are important dimensions we need to be thinking about. Thank you, Stephen. You, you asked whether working from home was a good idea. You know, a while back I thought so. After three months of being locked up, I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> All right, we've got plenty more questions. Uh, I will stop directing them to any one speaker, so whoever wants to grab them and run with them, that's great. Great Salter, who's joining the LSE as a student in September, would like to know, do you see a long-term trend away from globalized supply chains and toward national self-sufficiency and perhaps a return to manufacturing in place of a service sector? Anybody want to pick that one up? Stephanie, you're muted, Stephanie. Yeah. I um I mean this was obviously it's been really interesting and this is actually one of those ones where again having the sort of reporters is quite handy because there was a lot of debate at sort of panels like this early in the crisis about how this was going to be the end of globalization and we actually thought it was very striking it was the French finance minister at the first G20 finance ministers meeting at right in the early stages of covid uh which was in uh, Riyadh of course um but uh, th- he kind of went out of his way uh, to say that um, 
Bruno Le Maire made out, went out of his way to say that he thought this did start to make the case for national sovereignty and bringing production, having more control over your production chain. And in general, the rhetoric from European politicians has been stronger on that, that you need to be, you need to, as I think, highlighted particularly by security of the production and supplies of, of protective equipment, but also more generally. Um, and I think we will see that in some sectors, in part because companies were already having to respond to, for example, the US-China trade war and the prospect of quite a long-term shift in relations between US and China and potentially having to pick sides in terms of the technology, Huawei and other things. So I think those things will continue and probably accelerate. Um, but as companies have looked at it, uh, a lot of them are realising that they just have too much invested in those very very sophisticated supply chains. And even if you diversify, which I think some countries will, they want to have not just their China production, but maybe Vietnam and some other places, um, you can have the same hit. You can discover actually your Vietnam factory relies for 40% of its inputs from China. And so you're not actually getting the diversification you thought. So I suspect that um, the, the move away from globalization that we've seen already will probably accelerate in some areas but I don't think you will see a full-scale turnaround. What is, I think, relevant to some of the things Steve's talking about is it does look like you will have an acceleration of automation in quite a lot of sectors in response to this. And, of course, that can go with a bit of moving production at home, but it's moving manufacturing at home only on condition that it's going to require no workers at all, I would say. So it certainly doesn't suggest that we're going to have a new age of manufacturing employment. No, I, I was on a panel yesterday in which people argued that, in fact, instead of going away from globalization, the idea that you can work online is going to bring about yet another phase of globalization because, you know, an architect in Brazil can provide services for a firm in London without ever leaving Brazil. So well, um, Richard Baldwin has done the numbers on that, as you absolutely, know. Absolutely, exactly. That's what Richard calls the, the great third unbundling, which, of course, he's been predicting for a while, but maybe this is a time when it finally will happen, right? Um, mm. And for, you know, for emerging markets, that would be very good news um, because you can export services and not just that, not just goods, not just that natural uh, resources. For service sector workers in advanced economies, maybe not such good news. Oh, but absolutely. The machine translation has definitely changed the game on that. No, absolutely. Independent no. of COVID. I was, I was putting on my hat as a citizen of an emerging market. I think that's great news. <laughs> All right, uh, next question from Irodotos Nikolaidis, who's an LSE student here in London. He says, there's a lot of talk of greater public spending and greater uh, government investment, but if we're really going to deal with the challenge to modernize and with inequality, what should government really be spending its money on? He mentions two alternatives, green energy and labor reform, but adds that there could be many others out there. What are these priorities for spending, guys? Gemma, Steve? Okay, I'll have a go. Um, well, I, I actually just mentioned the, uh, the, the, the green issues and the sustainability issues. I think that's, I think that's an important dimension, uh, which sort of in the years of austerity got a bit shunted under the carpet uh, and I think really needs, needs, needs to become active, especially with the carbon tax targets and so on as well. And this seems to be an opportunity to move, move in, that, in, in, in that direction uh, uh, as well. Um, I'm not quite sure what kind of labour reforms uh, we, we, we're talking about. I'm not sure quite how they, how, how they would interact with, um, 
with responses to the pandemic. I mean, I mean, unless unless we again returning to talk about active labor market policies. Um, uh, but those are very necessary, but they do cost money, Steve, right? Of they do, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we, we can talk about money. I mean, it's, you know, I actually think something that ought to be uh, discussed in, in, in some ways that is, is, is the issue that we are having all this, Stephanie said the numbers before about forced saving. So some people, are, saving is going up very, very rapidly at the moment. And so the issue about a one-off wealth tax is actually an interesting concept. Uh, perhaps on the top 1% of net worth. That actually probably ought to be discussed. Uh, many people would be averse to it, I think, but but some people, many people wouldn't. And so it's an interesting idea, but if actually people do have a, a, an unexpected windfall of not being able to spend the money, they'd like to spend the money on their luxury products and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, there's an actually interesting uh, dimension of that because the shock has benefited them uh, rather than uh, been, been hurt other people as well. Um, so the spending issues are not necessarily only con- constrained to fiscal policy and, mm. and, and so on as well. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to move next to a question uh, from Isa Ibrahim, who's writing from Nigeria. And he says, what is the risk of inflation in this pandemic, especially in a country like mine, which is in a deep economic recession? Uh, we, we can think about the, the, the question in Nigeria's context but more generally. You know, there are two camps here. There are those who say we're in recession, there's no way prices can rise. And there's a minority but rather vocal camp that says down the road we will get inflation because look at all these monetary and fiscal policies. Uh, that didn't happen 10 years ago. The evidence is weak on that, but maybe this time will be different. Anybody care to reflect uh, about the risk of inflation? Stephanie? I can have a go. I, I mean, I think... Um... There is, it's certainly true that it didn't happen when you had this big increase in monetary growth, which is what people were worried about with quantitative easing a few ten years ago. Um, the numbers are even larger this time. I mean, the amount of the, I think that the monetary growth is, is has been off the scales the last few months. So if you are uh, someone who thinks money growth is important, uh, you are quite focused on this. We have, I mean, we know there's going to be some oddities, and I already spoke earlier about the sort of extraordinary fact that personal income might have gone up in su- at least for a couple of months due to this very dramatic fiscal transfers that have happened in response to this. Um, and that could well, that we do, there is that suppressed spending. For my money, I think certainly over the next um, 12 to 18 months, that's going to be offset, more than offset by the sort of precautionary aspect that we talked about earlier. I don't think people will be rushing to spend it all at once, uh, even if they have the capacity to. Um, over the sort of longer term, it's certainly possible, and given what we've been saying about debt, it wouldn't be necessarily undesirable to have uh, above-target inflation for some period of time. The US, UK by the way, has not really had a problem with above-target inflation for the last few years, but other countries, certainly the Eurozone, the dangers have all been the other way. And I think the way I think about it, um, and I was on something where I was agreeing with Jason, Jason Furman was, was putting it in a similar way, um, the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the States, which is if you look at the long term forecast for inflation in advanced economies, they are, at the moment it's around uh, one, one and a half percent, depending on which country you're talking about, over the next five years to average one and a half percent. Well, it'll probably turn out different from that. But if it turns out two percentage points below that, that's going to be a catastrophe. If it's two percentage points above, that is something that would be eminently handleable. So I think the same, the risk, we should still be assuming 
we should still be going on the assumption that we're in a low inflation world, even if it turns out we get a bit more this time than we did last time. Uh, I happen to agree with that, although I will say that there are lots of, um, you know, source of uncertainty about what happens down the road. Uh, if I may add my two cents worth here, because I've been thinking a lot about this issue. You know, we've created a lot of money. We've created a lot of debt. Um, the money supply, the high-powered money last time around rose by a factor of four. This time it'll rise again by a factor of three. Most models that we teach undergraduates suggest that can't be. Uh, at least you cannot have that uh, and a price level that doesn't move. Of course, what made the difference is that for other reasons, demography, technology, and others, the world interest rate went to zero. So when the interest rate is zero, you know, doesn't make any difference. I can, I can hold a bond or I can hold a pound or I can hold a dollar. The real question in my mind is what happens if it ever happens two, three years, four, you know, five years down the road, if for some non-macro reason, technology, demography, or anything else, the real world rate of interest goes back up and suddenly there are other places where I can put my resources other than zero yielding UK pounds or, or US dollars, then we're in trouble, right? Uh, and what we do then, uh, I have no idea. You're absolutely right. But the factors that we had associated with the super low real rate, if anything, seem to have been worsened, exacerbated by this crisis, I guess, is the only But you're, you're, That is clearly the key question. All right. Um, I do not want to shortchange questions coming in from the audience. Um, uh, I guess we have only eight minutes. So at this point, we're afford to get, you know, we're allowed to get more political. Um, so let me uh, read out a couple of questions which may be more controversial. Uh, um, Paul Kafka, um, who describes himself as a, UC, a UCL alumnus, says, by virtually any measure, this government has failed comprehensively to fulfill its number one priority, which is to protect the lives of citizens. Do you think that the government will last long enough to implement any of the policies you've been suggesting? Any care to have a go at that? Oh, yes, see, please. Um, shall I have a bash first and then I think... Okay, so? Sure, please. Um, I, mean, I think the question probably uh, is excessively harsh on the government. If you think about what would have happened had the government not stepped in and done anything uh, since the start of this crisis, the disease would have spread rapidly across the country. Um, many more people would have died and household incomes would have gone through the floor as the economy um, sort of shut down alongside this. Um, so I think we should give credit to where it's due for the huge kind of amount of action that the UK government, as governments elsewhere in the world, have stepped up to um, during this crisis. But clearly, um, it has not been perfect. And there have been areas uh, where things could have been done better. And there have clearly been problems in the UK with getting up and running things like test and trace systems that will allow us to understand the spread of the disease and keep it under control better. Um, and I think it's a, it's a work in progress on the economic policy report, support package. I agree with the comments that Stephanie made at the start that what was announced this week may not be enough in terms of um, supporting incomes and jobs as we go through the recovery stage. Um, but I think it's Probably uh, the question is a little bit uh, too harsh in its characterisation of the government. Um, whether whether the government will survive, um, I mean, this government has a strong majority in the House of Commons. Um, on the other hand, uh, having faced a fairly weak Labour opposition for many years, um, 
Keir Starmer seems to be uh, managing to um, sort of hold Boris Johnson to account more effectively um, than has been the case in the past. So uh, we're still some years away from a general election, but um, the opposition is starting to gain more traction. I guess they're in a difficult um, political space at the moment, which is the problem I think oppositions often face during times of crisis, which is not wanting to seem unconstructive and counterproductive by just hurling rocks from the sidelines, um, but at the same time kind of providing scrutiny and holding the government to account. Steve? I was going to say much the same. They've only just been elected. Uh, They've got a huge majority. They've got at least another four years, maybe 10 years in total, two terms. That was what the expectation was when they won with such a big majority. So, yeah, it's much the same as what Gemma said. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We have time for maybe one more question. Um, Okay, here we go. Um, Irina from uh, Bucharest, Romania would like to know about Brexit. Uh, it is remarkable. We've gone for an hour and a half. I think Stephen uh, uttered the word Brexit once. Highly unusual for LSE public events. Uh, the question is, for anybody who wants to pick it up, what will the aftermath of a pandemic mean for Brexit negotiations and for the future UK relations, the future of UK relations with Europe? Gemma, please. Um So this is clearly one way in which the UK is facing a unique additional challenge that other countries are not facing at the same time as uh, trying to deal with coronavirus. Um, And if there was a lot of uncertainty facing businesses and households in the UK about coronavirus and what that's going to mean for their jobs and their um, business future, you can, if you layer over that, the UK transition period ending at the end of December and the disruption that that will cause and still a lot of uncertainty about what any future relationship with the EU is going to look like. That clearly is not helpful to businesses and people planning um, and having the confidence to invest in their business, keep on workers, spend their money. Um, What does it mean for negotiations? Um, The UK government has chosen not to implement the request to the EU for an extension to the transition period. The deadline for that ran out at the beginning of this month. Um, There are, however, some ways that they could try and get more time. Um, It would require a buy-in from the EU side as well to either extend the transition period or to sign a new agreement that has some sort of uh, standstill uh, implementation period at the start of it. There are ways of doing it but that will require some um, goodwill on the EU's part. Um, so what does coronavirus mean for Brexit negotiations? Um, it clearly creates more pressure and more need for time um, to finalise details and to try and give businesses certainty and reduce the disruption that businesses will face from that at the same time as the government's current package of support for business through the VAT cut, through the job retention bonus, are all going to be coming to the end at a very similar time to when the Brexit transition period is going to end. So I think there is a potential um, kind of crunch point coming early in 2021. um, And that does potentially change the dynamics of the um, relationship between the UK and the EU and negotiating their future relationship. Thank you very much, Gemma. Um, I think remarkably we are within our allotted time, so I'm going to begin um, 
bringing the proceedings to a close. Uh, I want to uh, point out that uh, we had over 300 people joining us today on Zoom. We had many, many more on Facebook. Uh, I don't have the full list, but um, of the questions I've seen, we had questions plenty from the UK, but also from Argentina, Romania, Nigeria, China, Japan, uh, and a number of other countries, which I think is a, is a testament to the quality of our speakers uh, and, of course, to the uh, um, ability, the convening power of the London School of Economics. Stephanie, Gemma, Stephen, uh, thank you very, very much. Fascinating question. When we go back to normal, whatever normal is in the future, um, we can do another one of these live in person uh, uh, at the LSE. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, everybody, for participating and have a good weekend.